pray together. Father, uh, we praise you for Jesus Christ. And truly, all, uh, all that has come before and uh, all the saints who have walked before, especially uh, the, the great ones, uh, David, Moses, uh, Abraham, and Isaac, and those, and many others, uh, have all pointed uh, uh, to Jesus. Uh, they who uh, walked by faith and numbered among the, the household of faith all pointed to the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for he who died in our place, in our stead, who took on um, our sins and bore, uh, bore the wrath for our sins in our place. And so, Father, we thank you and praise you. We approach you as those who, with grateful hearts, who um, remember that we are the sinners who deserve death, but instead are saints who received your mercy and grace. Uh, We praise you and thank you for Jesus. And we ask that as we open up your word, may you continue to give us grace to understand um, your will for our lives, understand Jesus, understand you, uh, that we would uh, meditate and, and consider uh, your truths and your thoughts so that we might be equipped to, to live in this fallen world. You guard us from temptation to fall away, Lord. Guard us to ever put anyone else or anything else above Christ that you would help us to hold fast to Jesus, our confidence and, uh, and our hope. Uh, Lord, we praise you and thank you for this time as we open your book up. Pray that, pray that you'll be glorified through the preaching of your word and that your people would hear your voice and that they would follow your words. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Hebrews this day. Hebrews chapter 3 is where we'll be. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I want to appreciate that song that we just sung, uh, uh, well chosen, and we're reflection, uh, reflecting all the many of the truths that we sing that we're, we're studying in the book of Hebrews today. As you many of you are aware, uh, next Sunday is Easter Sunday, so therefore this Sunday is what we call Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, you probably know that. It's called Palm Sunday because it commemorates the day when Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, riding on the, the colt of a donkey. And as he rode into the city, the, the crowds of worshipers who were all growing, uh, heading toward Jerusalem for the Passover were stepping aside and were praising him, worshiping him. And we read in Matthew 21, verse 9, these words, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And of course, those were, these words are a reflection of the quote that we just read in Psalm 118, a recognition that Jesus is the one who is the Lord who saves and that he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord and that he is the one who deserves all our worship, all our praise. So this, the throngs of worshipers who worship God and approaching the Passover were worshiping Jesus, who would be the Passover lamb. They were ready to crown Jesus as the promised messianic king. They were spreading their coats, spreading the palm branches on the road, symbolizing their homage to him as king and worthy of praise. These people were willing to worship, follow, and serve this king. Sadly, you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, know the rest of the story, do we not know? For five days later, when the crowd was given a choice 
to set free Jesus or a criminal named Barabbas, they chose Barabbas. And as for Jesus, the crowds were shouting, crucify him. They no longer wanted Jesus because they thought that Barabbas was better suited to meet their desires. Some who were so eager to crown him were now ready to crucify him. And in this Palm Sunday, Easter, Passion Week story, we are reminded of a reality that sometimes happens in life. A reality that people who at one time have believed in Jesus, professed faith in Jesus, fall away because they're ready to forsake Jesus. And they forsake Jesus because in their minds there is something or someone that is better for them. Now I hope that many of us would, in our hearts, at least have the desire to never fall away, that we'd be like Peter and say, no, Lord, I'll never fall away from you. But I think we know in our weakness that we could. We could. Whether it's five days, five months, five years later down the road, there are going to be times in our life when trials come, circumstances exist that make it very difficult, that make us doubt and question whether Jesus is truly the one whom we can put our trust in. And there are things in such circumstances that cause us to realize that maybe there's someone or something that's better than Jesus. And those moments we will be tempted to fall away and forsake Jesus too because we think there is something or someone really better. The letter of Hebrews was written for this purpose. It was written for the purpose for believers like you and me. Living in a world of sin, living under, under circumstances of affliction, uh, persecution, trials, who were being tempted to abandon following Christ and returning to their old ways, particularly to their Old Testament rituals and uh, ceremonies. This letter reminds the readers that, that, they are, that they are to hold fast instead to Jesus. Jesus is God's final word. He is God's exalted son. And he is better than anything or anyone that they would turn to. We had already seen in chapters 1 to 2 that Hebrew, Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is better than the angels who are the mediators of the law, the messengers of God. In chapter 3, which we are beginning to this week, we're going to see that Hebrews goes one step further and explains now how Jesus is even better than Moses, the Old Testament prophet of God's law. Now, we all know, if you know your Old Testament, that Moses was greatly revered and respected by the Jewish people, for he has the one who delivered God's people from slavery in Egypt. He was the one who led them across the Red Sea as Pharaoh was chasing them behind. He was the one who led them to Mount Sinai, and he alone went up to the mountain where he received God's law for them. And he is the one who is the one who led them throughout 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to the cusp of the promised land. 
This is Moses. He is a, a hero par excellence. He is the great hero of the Old Testament, perhaps the greatest hero in the Old Testament. And for some Hebrew Christians, as this book is writing, written to, they were starting to think that perhaps Moses was better than Jesus. That Jesus, the, whom they had followed, was not cutting it like Moses. And perhaps they were doing to Jesus what, they were, what the Israelites had done to Moses and starting to doubt, is he even leading us the right way? Perhaps we need to go back to Egypt, go back to the Old Testament ways, is what these scenes were thinking. Today's passage was written for such Christians. It's written to guard God's people, written to guard you and me from following after anyone or anything, even as great as Moses, instead of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this passage, uh, three, out, three points, three outlines, three ways, I'm going to call it, three ways that Jesus is better than Moses, which encourage God's people to hold fast to Jesus. So um, I know that many of us are not going to be tempted to, uh, to think that uh, Jesus is better than Moses, uh, there are, but, uh, and, <clears throat> but there are going to be times in our life that we may be tempted to think that someone else or something else is better than, Moses, better than Jesus. And I hope that we'll see some of the application of this passage will be helpful to us in guarding us from ever falling away, instead encouraging us to hold fast to Jesus Christ. So let's take a look then at these three things, these three things. First of all, Jesus is better than Moses in that Jesus had a greater mission. Jesus had a greater mission. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. We see that there's a conjunction, therefore, and that connects basically what is going to follow with what has come before. It connects this, and what what it follows is really a command, an imperative command, and it is is motivated then by what has just preceded, the, the indicative, the statement of our previous passage. As you recall last week, what did we learn in the previous passage, in chapter 2, verse 10 to 18? There we learned that Jesus took on human flesh for, in order to taste death for everyone. It was important that he had to be one, come one of us so that he could die for us, his brethren, his brothers and sisters. It wasn't only that he died for our sake, but he also suffered for our sake, and he was, and he was tempted for our sake. All that Jesus did was in obedience to the Father, but it it was because, and it was for our sake. It was for everyone. It was for his brethren. And that's, what, that's why the author of Hebrews begins in verse 1 here, reminding them who they are. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers in a heavenly calling. These are brethren. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. These are professing believers in Jesus he's writing to. And he reminds them that they are holy they're a holy brethren. They're set apart by God. They're those, those, those who have been, are being sanctified by Jesus. And they, these who are holy brethren are also those who share in a heavenly calling, are partakers, sharers in it. It's a calling of, of, salvation, of a salvation that 
ultimately awaits them in heaven. We're reminded that believers, uh, our citizenship is not on earth, but it's, it's in heaven. We're looking for a heavenly citizenship. We're looking for a heavenly home. We're looking for a heavenly city, a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly kingdom. We're not, our, our treasures, our hopes are not bound up in this world. Remember that. Ultimately, what matters for the believers in Jesus Christ is what awaits us in heaven, or really who awaits us in heaven. It's when we forget that, when we think that this world is all there is, when we think that this is the most important and precious thing, all that is in this world, when we forget that heaven is our calling, and we think earth is our calling, that that's when we lose sight of Jesus, and we start being afraid of losing these things that we are clasping for. And sometimes, we're, we, because we lose sight of we're willing to forsake Jesus to hold on to the things of this world when you and I know that death eventually causes us to lose it all. So with this reminder of a heaven calling, the author then instructs believers to, to guard them. He says, to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The verb consider is a command, it's an imperative. It calls believers to ponder, to meditate, to, to seriously think about, not just to casually, not just to casually, just, oh, yeah, Jesus, that's nice, but to study. That's why we open our Bibles. That's why we, we preach the word as we do. We want you to consider Jesus. Have you considered Jesus? Do you, is our thought, do you think about Jesus much? Do you think about him during your days? That's what this command is, to consider Jesus, think about Jesus. It's used in one other place in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 24, where we're called to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We are to give thought and attention to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now, we're particularly to give thought to Jesus or consider Jesus in his dual roles. And particularly consider Jesus in his dual roles as apostle and as high priest. These two terms remind us of Jesus' mission here on earth. We're to think about Jesus' mission. First of all, we're thinking about Jesus' mission as the apostle. He's called the apostle. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is actually called an apostle. Normally, when we hear this term, we, recall, we think of and it recalls for us the apostles of Jesus Christ, right? The twelve, and maybe even the apostle Paul. But here, Jesus is called the apostle. He is literally the sent one. That's what apostle means, the sent one. Jesus is the one who was sent by God to save us. That is Jesus' mission. He's the sent one who was sent by God to save us. In the Gospel of John, 17 times in there, Jesus is described as being sent by God. And it's being important, and, one, and oftentimes repeated throughout is that people need to believe that he is the one who was sent by God. The most familiar is for us, perhaps, is John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
See, God sent his son, not to judge the world, but to save the world. That's why God sent the son. So the author of Hebrews wants his readers to consider then that Jesus is the one who was sent by God to save the world. That's, that's the gospel right there, you know. God sent his son to save the world, dying on the cross and rising from the grave. First, that's the first thing that, he, that the author of Hebrews wants us to consider. Consider, remember, meditate on that Jesus is the apostle sent by God to save us. But secondly, consider this, that Jesus is the high priest of our confession. He's the high priest of our confession. Our confession, again, refers to, here refers to the gospel truths that we believe, that we're sinners, that Jesus died and rose again for our sins, and that we must believe in him to be saved. And this is all because Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the high priest of our confession. He's the one who acts in that mediatorial role to bring about salvation through faith in him. This is the major theme in the book of Hebrews. Sixteen times in this book, we're going to see Jesus referred to as the high priest. Jewish people, of course, Jewish saints would have known the importance of these descendants of Aaron who would become and act as high priest. It'd be Aaron and then his son and his son's sons. It would be the sense of Aaron who would become high priest. And that man would act as the religious leader of Israel. And of all his responsibilities, his most important responsibility, the one that only he and he alone could do, would be on the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur. For on that day he would enter into the Holy of Holies, where he would then offer sacrifices on behalf of the people for their sins. He would atone for their sins as well as his every year. And where, in contrast to those priests, Jesus is the ultimate high priest. We, re- we will study later in passages such as Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 to 27, truths such as this. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is the one who saves us by offering one sacrifice once for all. That sacrifice, of course, being himself. Hebrews wants us, in order to guard us from falling away, to consider Jesus, think about Jesus, ponder about Jesus, study Jesus, the one who was sent to save us by offering a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Jesus was faithful to God in this mission as the apostle and the high priest of our confession. But so was Moses, right? Moses was faithful too in his mission, as the scripture tells us. But Jesus' mission was the greater mission. Moses was sent to save Israel. Jesus was sent to save the world. Moses was a prophet of God, but never a high priest. His brother Aaron served as high priest. Jesus, however, was both prophet and high priest. Jesus is better than Moses because Jesus had a greater mission and he was faithful to that mission. 
And this leads to a second point. How Jesus is greater than Moses that encourages us to hold fast to him is that Jesus has a greater glory. Jesus has a greater glory. Verse 3 and 4, we read this. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 3 is the straightforward statement of our point that Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That is, he has a better, greater glory than Moses. He is worthy of more praise. He is worthy of more worship. He's worthy of more honor. He's worthy of more thanks. And the author explains this point with an illustration from construction in that day. When a house or a building is built, as beautiful as that building might be, as wonderful and useful that it may be, uh, the builder is the one who receives more honor. And it's true. I mean, you, you, may, uh, you may be amazed at a house. You may go there and appreciate, wow, look at all these new uh, uh, features, those, those great details. But when you actually meet, if you, you get to meet the one who built the house, that is what causes greater astonishment. It's just as simple as even artwork, you know. My kids draw me stuff all the time. And I look at it, oh, this is awesome. You know, this is a, a you know, stick figure drawing of Star Wars characters. And I think that's wonderful, but I don't go, oh, you know, praise this painting, you know, this, this drawing. I look at my kid and I say, you did a wonderful job in drawing this drawing for me. For the builder of the house has more honor than the building. And that's true, and that Jesus is that builder. You know, and then we see this, of course, too, <coughs> in, our, on our, in our day. If you go on Yelp, you know, you look for contractors to fix stuff in your house, you know, your roof, your fence, or whatever, pave your driveway, perhaps. And, uh, you read those reviews, and you see all the photos of those various finished works. But the view, reviewers, they, they don't praise the roof, nor the fence, nor the driveway. The reviewers, they, they praise the contractors who built the roof. Who, the contractors who built the fence, the contractors who, who made the driveway. And so the builder has more honor than the house itself. That's just the principle. And since verse 3 started with Jesus having more glory than Moses, the implication here is that Jesus is the builder of this house. And Moses, instead, is a, in, con, in, in the analogy, is part of the house. Just as that's why Jesus has more glory than Moses. Verse 4 makes the greater glory of Jesus even more apparent by reminding readers that every house is built by someone, right? But that God is the ultimate builder of all things. That God is the creator, God is the maker of all things, we're reminded, and we know that, we acknowledge that to be true. And we particularly remember that earlier in Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 2, Jesus is the one who is attributed as being the creator. He is the one through whom God made the world. John 1.3 even tells us uh, that all things came into being through him. Through whom? That is the word of God who became flesh, right? And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we learn, therefore, that verse 4 reminds the readers that it's, God is the builder of all things, but more significantly, Jesus is God. For he has built this house. He is the builder of the house that is being referred to here. This glory is even greater when we consider what is referred to by the house. Although the illustration of a house is speaking of physical buildings, the house that Jesus and Moses are associated with here as, uh, are, 
are not a physical building. It's not talking about the, the tabernacle or the temple that exists, but it refers to a group of people. A few verses later, in verse 6, we're going to see that this is made specific, that we are the house. Those who are believers are part of the house. So then, the house that Jesus is the builder of, and that Moses is a part of, is not a physical house, but is a household. It's a people. It's the household of God. It's the family of God. Moses was a faithful member in God's household, but Jesus is the builder of the household. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, which is alluded to in the wording of this passage, there Moses is affirmed by God as being faithful in all of his household. God affirmed him as being a faithful member of his family, his household. He's a part of it. Later on in chapter 11, Moses is going to be listed among the people of faith, right? In chapter 11, verse 23 to 28, by faith Moses did this and this and this. But in contrast, we don't see Jesus listed as one who does anything, who is part of that household of faith there, but he is the one who is the, in chapter 12, verse 2, is the author and perfecter of faith. He's the, the originator of their faith. He's the leader of their faith. He's the author of their salvation. And so we see just a, this, this contrast is that Jesus is the builder of God's household, while Moses is a part of God's household. household. That's why Jesus is worthy of greater glory than Moses. To go back to Moses, to return back to the Old Testament ways, to return back to the law, is to give greater glory to Moses than to Jesus. And that is blasphemy. And we may never do that with Moses. We're not Old Testament, we don't, we're not Jewish people mostly, so we don't have that kind of high elevation of Moses as they did. But nevertheless, we're people. And sinful people, we, we have these tendencies to elevate other people in our lives, don't we? We, we, I remember Russ, uh, thinking that uh, one of these older brothers in my fellowship group was in the co- as a collegiate. He was so he was so great and so godly. He could do no wrong. <laughs> I praised him all the time. I probably, probably praised him more than I praised Jesus until he told me to just stop it. <laughs> Good for him. Worship Jesus. Love Jesus. Don't love man. But we all have our favorites, don't we? We all have our favorite preachers. John MacArthur, John Piper, Chuck Swindoll, Al Mohler, Alistair Begg, Ray Fung. We have our favorites. Okay, Henry Tam, throw them in there. Now, but if your spiritual life, if you in your mind, in your heart, your spiritual life depends on the preaching of any one of these men, as godly and great preachers that they are, then you have made them greater than Jesus. You do not need these well-known preachers for your spiritual life. You only need Jesus. You only need Jesus. They are only preachers of the word of God. He is the word of God. We must keep this healthy reminder that our spiritual lives do not depend or do not need any one person, any one preacher, but our lives depends upon the one who is the subject of all preaching, Christ in him crucified.
glory and praise belong to him because he is the builder of the household. More glory, more praise, more honor, more thanks should we ascribe to him. So we've seen that Jesus is better than Moses because he has a greater mission and because he has a greater glory. Thirdly, Jesus is greater than Moses in that Jesus has a greater rank, a greater rank. In verses 5 to 6, we see this. In verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. In these two verses, the contrast is specifically made between Moses and Christ. They're contrasted particularly in their roles in within God's household. The wording of verse 5 and just I mean, the wording of this whole passage really is an allusion to Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. They're the same, and for the, many of these words are the same words as found in the Septuagint translation, the Greek Old Testament translation of uh, Numbers 12, 7. And Numbers 12, 7, is just to kind of get back, go back there to give you the background, is a significant thing because in Numbers 12, no less than Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, led a rebellion against Moses. In their pride, they thought that they were just as qualified, just as capable to lead God's people as Moses did. Did God only speak to Moses? What about us? Did I not, am I not a, a, a going to be a high, high priest? Am I, not gonna be, am I not the one who led the people in worship and praise of God? And that was their boast. They, they thought that they were greater than Moses. But God shows up and calls them all, and he calls them to account. In Numbers 12, 6, God reminds them that with other prophets, other prophets that they, might, that they have known of, God speaks to them in a, in a vision or in a dream sometimes. But not so with Moses. Look at Numbers 12, verse 7 verse to 8. This is what God says. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? In contrast to the other prophets, Moses is completely on a different level. Moses was the prophet par excellence, right? He is the one who is greater than any of the other prophets that ever had existed or would ever exist in the Old Testament. God speaks to him face to face, mouth to mouth, he says. In his presence, he is the only prophet who can, has this free access to God. He goes to here, he talks to God, God talks to him in the tent of meeting. Moses even gets to see the Lord Unlike anybody else, he gets to see the Lord, albeit just the backside of his glory while hid in the cleft of the rock, because he is simply a man too, just like you and me. No prophet could boast to be like Moses. Moses is the prophet of God in the Old Testament, and he is God's faithful servant. By the way, that word servant is, is a it's not the typical term for a servant that we see in New Testament, like the word slave, doulos. It is a, a phrase that means it's a highly elevated role as a servant. It's, it's, a, it's an esteemed servant in a household. And so to be called God's servant here is, a, is to be 
is an esteemed role that Moses has. And as great as Moses is, Moses simply pointed to one who is greater. He spoke of those things which were to be spoken later. Moses delivered Israel but Jesus, from their physical slavery, but Jesus would deliver them from their spiritual slavery. Jesus we, was, is throughout Moses' writings, and primarily the Pentateuch, often pointed to Jesus. The most well-known of these uh, prophecies that pointed, of Moses that pointed to Jesus is Deuteronomy 18. There, Jesus, we read this in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. There's going to be another prophet. You didn't listen to me a lot of times. You often rebelled against me. But when the prophet comes in the future, you shall listen to him. You will listen to him. Later on, verse, a few verses later in 18 and 19, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will, will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about whoever will listen to, not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. God is speaking specifically here, and he says God himself will raise up a prophet like Moses. He will put his words in his mouth. He will be God's spokesman and such that he'll be God's spokesman so that when he speaks to avoid, to reject his words is to reject God's words. For to reject him is to reject God and God will hold all to account who reject his word, this future coming prophet. Jesus is this future coming prophet. He is the prophet foretold by the great prophet Moses. So while Moses is God's servant, Jesus is greater, for he is God's son. Jesus is God's final word. Jesus, God, if he, no other way, could God speak more clearly and completely to mankind as he did in his son. Moses is the faithful servant of God, but Jesus is the faithful son of God. And for this reason, Jesus is greater than Moses. He has a greater rank than Moses. To turn away from Jesus back to Moses is a rejection, then not just of Jesus, it's a rejection of God who sent Jesus. God's faithful son came as a prophet who would reveal God to us in a way that no other prophet could. Jesus is the builder of God's whole household. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is greater than Moses, God's great servant. And if Jesus is greater than Moses, then he is also greater than any other person that you or I may ever turn to. Jesus is greater than every person in your life that you may lift up in your life. He's greater than your spouse. Jesus is greater than your children. Jesus is greater than your friends. Jesus is greater than your favorite teacher or preacher. For none of them can save you. Only Jesus can. And he does. So then verse 6 ends of of, uh, chapter 3 ends with this encouragement to faithful perseverance in Jesus. There it says, whose house we are. That is God, this this house that, that Jesus is a faithful son in. 
if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope. When we hold fast to Jesus as our confidence, that is our, our, our boldness to approach his throne, that we can approach Jesus, God's throne through faith in Jesus, that's what it means, or when we hold fast to Jesus as the, our hope, primarily our hope of eternal life, our hope of forgiveness of sins, we demonstrate that we belong to God's house. Those who belong to God's house are those who hold fast to his son. And this will happen as you, throughout your life, regularly, continually consider Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Reflect on Jesus. Think on Jesus. Study Jesus. May, you may study and think many things in this world, but may you be an expert Become an expert on Jesus. It doesn't matter what you get degrees in. They will not save you. Only a degree in Jesus will save you. Trusting him who died for your sins as the apostle and high priest of our confession. There are some people who see this and say, is this this a... If we hold fast to Jesus, then we're going to be saved like a works kind of base? No, not really. And I think the best way we can illustrate this is through an illustration with a parent and children. You know, when you take your child to Disneyland, and it's crazy there, you know? And it's a massive crowd, especially when they're little. What do you tell your kids usually? Well, you strap them in. But if not, then they're out walking about. You tell them, hold my hand. Hold my hand. This massive market. You hold my hand. Don't let go of my hand. You will not get lost. You hold their hand because if they hold on to your hand, they do not let go, they hold on to you, that will ensure that they arrive safely back home with you, right? Now, of course, they're kids. There are times when they let go. <laughs> they, oh, look, you know, Mickey Mouse, you know. It's not because, and it's because they hold my hand that they get home. But it's because ultimately that I, as their parent, hold on to them. I know whose hand belongs to my children and I will only hold their hand. I will not let them go. Yeah, they may let go and they may wander off, but I will find them and grab their hand and bring them back with me. So that at the end of the day, when I'm back home, the ones who's holding my hands and the hands whom I hold are my children. They come home with me. In the same way, brothers and sisters, we hold on to Jesus if we want to be, get home. And in that same way, we can trust that though we fail, though we wander, though we get lost, though we sin, though we stray, God is the one who holds on to our hands. And we, with this confidence, can hold on to him then, knowing that he is not going to mistake anything. He's not going to, oh, oh, I'm going to grab the wrong hand. No, God will hold on to your hand. So you hold on to him. You hold fast to Jesus. For Jesus is the better Moses. In all the ways that Moses was great, Jesus is greater. And therefore, we who have believed can rest assured that He is our ultimate and our only confidence and hope. 
He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the builder of God's house. He is the faithful son of God. This one, this one, Jesus, took on human flesh to save us from our sins. And as long as we consider who he is, as long as we meditate on what he has done, we can hold fast to him. We will be motivated, we will be inspired, we'll be encouraged to hold on to this one who is our only confidence and our only hope in all of life and death. For he is faithful to him who appointed him, and he is also faithful to those who belong to him. I'll leave you with three questions just to meditate as we uh, uh, this week or we discuss in small groups. Question number one, are you considering Jesus in your daily life? Are you thinking about Jesus? Is he in your thoughts and meditations? If you're not considering Jesus, it leaves you in a place where you are susceptible to fall away from Jesus when trials come. Number two, who are people in your life that you may be tempted to consider more important than Jesus? There are sometimes people that exist in our lives that a lot of times it's significant others that will draw us away from Jesus because we think that they're better than Jesus even. When God gives us significant others, spouses, uh, uh, fiancés, boyfriends, girlfriends, is so that they would cause us to draw nearer to him who gives these loved ones into our lives. And thirdly, what is the source of your confidence and hope? What, what is your confidence and hope to, for in, in, in life? And death. Is it in Jesus? Is it in Jesus? That's for he, his completed work on the cross is our only hope for our calling in heaven. And so with that, let's, uh, let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for these truths. Thank you for Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, the builder of your house, this family with whom we belong the one who is our confidence and our hope. Lord, we pray that we would hold on and hold fast to Jesus. Guard us, Father, from ever being tempted to think that anyone or anything is better better than Jesus, that we would fall away from Jesus and forsake him for another. And yet, Lord, we know that in our sinfulness, that we can be fickle at times like the Israelites in the wilderness, that sometimes when things in our life don't seem to work out as we wish them to work out, that we start looking elsewhere at times. We start wandering. And God, we pray that you would guard us in those times by helping us to regularly and consistently consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the author of our salvation, your final word, your exalted son, the one who sits at your right hand, having finished the work and the mission that you have sent him for. And Lord, we know that our hope, our life is secure because of him. Help us to hold fast to Jesus, we pray. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.